Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we feature audio from our service on Sunday, March 13th. And this is part eight in our series on the book of Philippians called Letters from Prison. Today we look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. The message is titled One Mind, where Paul encourages the Philippian church to be on the same page, to be in unity with one another. Also, just want to mention that we are currently a few days into our 40 days of faith as we kind of observe Lent as a church. And as part of that, we've put up some resources at northshorevineyard.org, uh, daily readings and reflections posted Monday through Friday. And there's also a little sheet you can download that kind of helps guide you through some certain areas of prayer. So ask if uh, you'd like to be a part of that. Check that out and uh, follow along with us. All right. Well, let's head over to the talk. North Shore Vineyard. Thanks for listening. Uh, today we're going to get into, uh, we got a lot of scripture to cover today because we're just doing two verses from Philippians, but it kind of launches us off in a lot of different directions. So let's jump into it. We're, this is part eight of our series uh, on Philippians. We're calling this Letters from Prison. If you haven't been here, the reason we're calling it this is because the, the context of Paul writing this letter, he didn't write this letter from seminary. He didn't write it... Uh, from some monastery or something like that. He wrote it from prison. He'd been in prison a long time. And so that's an important kind of context to keep in mind. So this is called Letters from Prison. And we're in Philippians 2. So uh, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Father God, we ask these words to just penetrate the depths of our hearts this morning. God, let let us understand what this means. And God, by all means, help us to live this out in our lives. In Jesus' name. You know, every once in a while, we see collaborations, whether in sports or music or even in art, different aspects, even probably in the culinary world where you get a few people who are extremely gifted, and then they come together and do something amazing, that, that it, the sum is even greater than the parts. Uh, I think one of the best examples of this that I could think of is the 1992 men's Olympic basketball team. Remember these guys? This is the dream team. Now, this team has gone down. Many sports writers and sports authorities, they, they call this truly like one of the best sports teams ever. Not just basketball, but this, it, it's, it's one of the few times where you had this many amazing players on one team. In 1992, they kind of changed the rules on the Olympics a bit. Up to that point, you couldn't have played basketball in the Olympics if you had ever made money doing it, but they changed the rules. And so on this team, you had the likes of Larry Bird, 
Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Magic Johnson, David Robinson, Charles Barkley, to name a few. I don't even follow basketball, but I know all those names because I've seen the commercials with all these guys in them. <laughs> this, they said that 10 of the 12 players on this team are in the top 50 NBA players of all times. 10 of them. That's one-fifth of the top 50 players of all time were on this team. Just to put it in perspective, Shaquille O'Neal tried out for this team and he didn't make the cut. You know, so it was truly the cream of the crop. It's, it's the type of team you don't ever see come together. And then when they went to the Olympics, man, they just mopped up the competition left and right. It was, it was just, there was none of these games where it came down to the last minute. It was, they beat every team by an average of 44 points a game. 44 points. And then the last game that they won over Venezuela to get the gold, they beat them 127 to 80. I mean, just, it was just sad if you had to play these guys. It just humiliating. And so that's why they were called the dream team. And dream teams are very rare. But somehow, over the 90s, 1996 Olympics, they, they managed to do another kind of dream team that came together, a bunch of professional guys, and they did good again. Nobody quite matched the 92 team. And then, a couple of years later, they did it again. Well, does anybody remember the 2004 men's Olympics basketball team? Yeah, not quite the dream team. Actually, a lot of sports authorities refer to this team as the nightmare team. I went online trying to find a picture of these guys all standing together. This was the only picture I can find. It's like you can't even find facts about this team because obviously they've gone, you know, the guys from this team have gone on Wikipedia and deleted all of it. <laughs> but, but this team, the Nightmare team, they really had the makings of the dream team. Let me give you some of their, you might recognize a few of these names. Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Amika Okafer, Tim Duncan and Carmelo Anthony. These were truly some of the best, best of the best basketball players in the world in 2004. Still are. I mean, LeBron James, he's no, no, no shabby player. And their coach was a guy named uh, Larry Brown, who that year had just led the Detroit Pistons to winning the, the NBA championships that year. So they had all the components of being the dream team again. This was going to be like the 92 team. But... What we learned, the humbling lesson America learned that year was that even a mediocre team, even a team of of players that weren't quite as talented as the Americans, if they played as a team, they were better (laughs) than the Americans. Even mediocre players who can come together and play as a team can beat the cream of the crop. Now understand, every guy on this team probably, at least most of them, we're getting paid millions of dollars. They had the best trainers, the best facilities, the best backing. I mean, most of the guys that they played, you know, were lucky to make any money, you know, <laughs> from the other teams. And yet when they got out there, they had attitudes, they had egos, there was dissension, and they ended up getting the bronze. And you may think, well, pff, the bronze, that's not too bad in the Olympics. Well, for 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 US men's basketball team they've only not gotten the gold 3 times in history of basketball at the at the olympics and this was one of them and these guys shouldn't have done it they didn't understand a key concept of unity of playing 
as a team. I believe this is kind of what Paul is trying to hit on this morning as we look in Philippians. He's, he's talking about the, how important it is for us to be of one mind, one love, one spirit. And, and when I read these words of Paul, I think, yeah, Paul, that's great. I'm a big fan of that. It's awesome when you see the dream team, but come on, Paul, you're talking to Christians. <laughs> we don't have that great of a track record, do we, for getting along with one another? Do we? Anybody? Am I in the wrong place? Okay. <laughs> Christians, it seems like among all people in the world, Christians really have a rough time getting along. I could go over the statistics of how many different denominations there are in the world, but that would just be depressing right now. You know, I, I used a, a, a picture last week um, of that I'm going to show here in a second of, of my trip I recently took in, in Israel but uh, to, to illustrate some of the divisions. But when I read these words of Paul, they, they almost strike me as kind of idealism. Like, they almost sound like something John Lennon would say. Like, let's just give peace a chance. It's like, okay, Paul, I like that. I like the idea of unity and being one heart, one love. That's great. <laughs> But the Christians I've been around, usually that doesn't last for more than about five minutes. You know, it lasts through the worship service. Sometimes not even then, because somebody's complaining about this song or that song. Or uh... So is Paul merely just writing peppy words, you know, mere ideas? Has he lost his mind? Well, one, one note I want to make right here at the beginning is that, you know, tying back into the, to the title of the series... Any bit of idealism that Paul might have had, I believe, was taken care of by being in prison. <laughs> Any high hopes that Paul had had about, you know, just church planning and this movement was going to take over the world just by like at a snap of the fingers, I believe any of that was whittled away in the months of solitude and hunger that Paul had faced in prison. So when Paul writes these words, he's not writing as a lunatic here. He's not writing as some idealist. He's actually trying to get them to live up to what Christ died for, what Christ lived for, a unity, being on the same page. You know, it's interesting. A lot of scholars have noted that the book of Philippians, Paul talks about joy more than any other book in the Bible. I mean, he just... Already in the first chapter, have you noticed how much he's talking about, you know, you guys, I'm filled with joy. I'm here in this prison, but I'm filled with joy. I think about you. My heart gets warm, and I, I, I just, I'm rejoicing. And Paul right here, he says, look, I'm happy. I'm overjoyed at the way you guys are taking care of me. You see my needs here in prison. I'm overjoyed at what God's doing. But he says, but if you want to kick it up a notch, if you want to make my joy complete, get along with one another. Be on the same page. I want to show a few pictures from my trip to Jerusalem. This first picture is looking up at the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the oldest official church building in the world. Uh, This was built in the 300s AD. Uh, Next slide, please. You go in. This this is looking up. This is understand. This is probably 70 foot up. It's it's way high. It does. You don't have much of a chance for, for depth here. And then finally, the next picture, this is kind of walking in the front door. Now, I'm actually looking out towards the front door where the light's coming in. They don't have like a whole lot of lights in this building. But you, you walk up a staircase into this area, and this is the Catholic section. And you walk from there into the Greek Orthodox section, and, and they actually have the little spot where the, uh, 
a, a rock that they think was right where Jesus was crucified. Now, this church, it, it was an interesting experience going here because this church was built back in, in 300 by Constantine himself, the Roman emperor who converted to Christianity. He sent his mother to the Holy Land, said, Mom, go find out where Jesus was crucified, and let's build a church there. So she found out, supposedly, where he was crucified, and so they built a church there because that's what they do every place that they find out that Jesus did something. They build a church there. And, and so everything was going good, but as Christianity progressed and there became more divisions the the orthodox church split from the catholic church and then there was more and more groups of christians with diverging ideas this spot became very contentious everybody wanted to have it so an interesting thing happened in in the 1500s ad there was this group the ottoman turks and they took over uh middle east and a lot of the mediterranean world and it's interesting because they saw all the fighting between all the Christians who wanted to use this building. And so these Muslim Turks uh, ended up coming up with a solution to help the Christians get along with each other. That there, that there's an interesting thought, right? <laughs> like, like things can get so bad in Christianity that we have to have some Muslims come and uh, here's the solution for how you guys can get along. So the Muslims, the reason why you see the Catholic quarter up here and then you see the Greek Orthodox, and if you go around this church, you've got the Ethiopian, the or, uh, uh, Armenian, the uh, Coptics, the Syriac, you've got all these different kinds of Christianity. A lot of them I've never even heard of. So, so the the Ottoman Turks, they divide this church up into a bunch of parts and they say, okay, here's the solution. Y'all can all have a piece of this church. But still, this is the most contentious little piece of real estate on the planet. Actually, I, I mentioned last week, there's this, this uh, festival of the Holy Fire that happens the week leading up to Easter and the Ethiopian church lights a flame and then they, they, everybody lights candles off of it, but everybody's trying to get the fire. And so they fight each other. <laughs> and, and it turns in, there's riots in this church. Every year, Jerusalem has to send in police officers. Again, probably Jews and Muslims to help the Christians get along. <laughs> so I got to say, when I came to this church, I was kind of sad. Out of all the places that I went on the Holy Land, I was like, this place really made me sad. Because I, I'm like, here we are at the very place where Christianity started. The most important event in the history of the world, the crucifixion. And then this place has become a symbol to everybody else of how much we Christians can't get along, how much we let egos get involved, how much we can't just focus on Jesus, but we have to build our own little empires and we have to fight about who's worshiping better and who's got the better style here and who's got the best religious practices. Well, I want to contrast that with what happened at the end of my week in Jerusalem. The next picture I want to show is a place we went to called the garden tomb. This is a little plaque I took a picture of. Uh, off in the background, you'll see, this is, uh, it's blurred out, but it's, it's the tomb. Let's look at the next picture. This is the actual, what, what they think was the actual tomb that Jesus was placed in. Uh, he didn't stay there for long. It's just He got the, the two-night deal. Um, <laughs> but you can actually walk into this tomb. Let's look at the next picture. This is the tomb. Not much to look at, right? This is a very different type of place than the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Everywhere you go in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, things are like gaudy, like ornate and stuff everywhere. This place is very simple. It's an empty tomb carved out of rock. Okay, next picture. 
And then on the door, I love this. <laughs> what our tour guide says, you know, he's this British guy. And he's like, well, you know, the important thing about this tour today is, is you'll walk in and you get to see this tomb. But guess what? He's no longer in there. <laughs> and we're like, cool. And so on the door that, that kind of shuts on the tomb, they, they have this plaque that says, he's not here, he is risen. After we walked in and saw the tomb, they have places in this garden Actually, this garden was, a, they, they think that, that at the time Jesus was placed in there, it was actually a vineyard. So I was like, <laughs> cool. Um, not a vineyard church, but a, an actual vineyard. Um, but <laughs> uh, see, we are, we are the right ones here. No. Um, <laughs> that's why we're going we're gonna, to, we're gonna, our church is going to take over that spot. No, um, they're... Uh, in that garden, they have these places set up with different chairs and stuff where you're, you can come in with your group and you can have communion together. And we got there about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It was kind of the cool of the day. And we're sitting out there, and I'm with a, a group of, of Methodists from uh, Georgia. And I, I haven't hung around with Methodists much up until I met Mark and Betty. And they're from Georgia, too. Actually, they had a friend who was on my trip. So... <laughs> Uh, I didn't have much of a grid for... for I, I've been around Catholics and Baptists, but I hadn't really been around Methodists much. My aunt and uncle were on the trip. But, um, so there I am in this garden with these, this group of Methodists from Georgia. And then next to me this walks up a, a Palestinian Christian, and he's got three people from India. And we're sitting on the same road together, and we're sitting out there. And as... They had the Methodist bishop. He led us in communion. As he was there, I'm just sitting there, and you begin to hear worship rising up in different parts of the garden as other groups are taking communion. But it's not, it's worship in different languages. It's a group from the Philippines over here. You got a group from East Asia over here. You got a group from South America over here. And I was just sitting there in that moment, reflecting on the body and the blood of Christ. And I was like, Wow, this is it. This is what Jesus was about. This is what Jesus came to do. Because in that moment, there was no, it wasn't homogeny. It wasn't like we were all singing the same song the same way and all trying to do it. You know, frankly, even when it came to the worship, the group I was with, they were doing a lot of hymns and and I was trying my best to to sing along and I didn't know a lot of the words, so I'd kind of mumble along what I could. But I was worshiping from my heart. And when I heard the songs of these Filipinos over here, I got caught up in their worship. We were all different. We were all doing different things, different styles from different cultures, but we were all focused on one person. What we experienced at the garden tomb was a... I'm sure it's what everybody probably experiences when they go to the Holy Land because the contrast was absolutely night and day from what I experienced at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You know, there was actually one place we went in where we're, we would go to these places and read a little devotional and usually sing a song, you know, a hymn or something. And we went to the upper room where Jesus was and then all of a sudden we're, we're singing a hymn. We're like halfway into it. We're not going to take long. You know, we take about two minutes to get done with this hymn. And all of a sudden, halfway into our hymn, a group of, of Orthodox, Russian Orthodox people come in there, and they start, you know, and it was just like battle of the worship, like, like it, it felt really weird. Well, well, that wasn't the case at the garden tomb. And, and I got to say, I believe when we get those tastes, 
when we taste that for a moment, we're tasting of what the kingdom of God's going to be like. You know, if you look at Revelations, it says in the end, you got people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. They're all worshiping. And it doesn't say that their cultural identities are, are dissolved in the hereafter. They're worshiping in, in identities that can be identified as nation, tongue, tribe. But they're all focused on the king of kings. I want to look at a couple of things that Paul talks about from other, other letters that are unity busters when it comes to uh, Christianity. The first one, I would say, is overemphasizing one gift or personality at the expense of others. Or you could actually even turn this around and say de-emphasizing one gift or personality uh, uh, because of others. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31. A lot of reading, but stick with me here. Paul writes, just as one body, though, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that fact reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, we'd look like that guy from Monsters, Inc. Um, (laughs) Where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they are all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ. Each and every one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church... First of all, the apostles, seconds, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. And and are all all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. I know that's a big chunk, chunk of scripture. Hopefully you could follow with me. Basically what Paul's saying here, he's saying... In the church, the body of Christ, there are many different giftings and expressions. And we need all those. And sometimes you may feel, you may feel like you come into church and you're like, man, I, I just don't feel like I, I, I got much to offer here. Well, Paul is saying, just because you don't think you're a part of the body doesn't mean that you're not. You are. You may not be Mr. Stand up in front of everybody and, and, and talk to people. Actually, according to Paul's logic, the people that are up front are the weakest of all. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know if I agree with Paul. <laughs> 
And Paul says some of the parts of the body that, that seem, you know, like the feet. He's like, you know, you, you, you tend to, to value the, the, the face and you, you think the, the feet are, but he's like, man, feet are pretty important. They may be covered up, uh, but, but you need feet. <laughs> Paul is saying that we have a tendency to overemphasize the things that we feel are important, don't we? Like, I feel like certain things are important. This is my gifting. Everybody should be just like me. I, I found back when I first got into ministry years ago, I kind of felt that way. I was like, man, everybody, if everybody would just think about Jesus like me, we'd all be better, right? If everybody would worship like me, if everybody would read the Bible the way I do, then we'd all be better. I've come to realize in recent years that, wow, I really desperately need other people with very different gifts in my life. I, I really realized this in Kenner. We we started a, a, a teaching team years ago, and I got a, on on that, and and it was we'd have four guys, and we'd battle through the text every week, and we'd talk about it, and we'd have sometimes we'd have arguments over things, and and we'd be coming with different points of view, but but the end result was at the end of the week, it would always be better than if one person had been in there just working by himself, and so a couple of. Months ago, I actually started a teaching team here at the vineyard where I got, a, I got five guys I get with once a week. And, and these guys, every one of them is different from me, coming from very different places in life. But we start working through the text together. Because I realize as much as I'm not a big fan of details and administration and certain things in life, man, I need those people around me really bad. <laughs> So some of you who've offered to help in those areas, I, I call on you very quickly after you offer. Because I realize I'm not that person. But we, I need people like that in my life. The same way people who are very detail-oriented, they need people like me who are more big picture. We all have gifts to offer one another. And Paul's saying, keep that in mind. Don't overemphasize your particular slant on things at the expense of others. We are all part of this body. We all have something to do. See, back to the dream team for a moment. Michael Jordan, as amazing as he is, probably the best bas- basketball player that ever lived, uh, at least one of the best. Uh, if the whole team was Michael Jordan's, it'd probably be fun to watch. But really, on that dream team, he needed other people like Charles Barkley, like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Every one of them, as great as they were, they each brought a different part to the equation that made the sum greater than the parts. The, act, the other thing I want to note on here real quick is, what, as a unity buster, is from Romans 14. And this is where Paul talks about disputable matters. He says, "...except the one whose faith is weak." without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak gets only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master the servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us 
lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Anybody looking for a good life verse? This is mine. Um, Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. That's my life verse. Um, (laughs) Yes, bacon especially. (laughs) You know, years ago, Dina, because of health issues, had decided to go on a strict vegetarian diet, and, uh, and she did, and, and it was great for her health. And in the midst of that, she got kind of introduced to a, a group that, uh, I won't mention their names, but they're a, a, a Christian vegetarian group. <laughs> and, and they're real into that. And, and they have some really great products and some really great stuff. The problem is, you read their materials... They kind of write it like if you're not a vegan, raw foods vegetarian, you're in sin. You're not eating the way God intended you to eat. And every time I get, like, like she picks up these things, and I had to tell her to stop reading it. I'm like, I don't care how healthy the stuff is in here. It's religious bondage. It's not, this isn't helpful. Because then every time she reads it, she starts getting all weird and feeling guilty and condemned. And I'm like, this isn't, this isn't God. If God's telling you to step away from meat, then great. That's fine. But you're not supposed to make it a law for everybody. Back in Paul's day, the, the big issue at the, of the church at the time, particularly in Rome, if you went down to Rouse's, you'd find that all the meat that was available in the meat market, uh, the, your butcher, was he worked at the local temple to Zeus. <laughs> and all that meat had been sacrificed to idols. And so that was, a, that was a conflict for Christians, as I can imagine it would be for us today. If, you, if, if the only meat you could get in Louisiana had been sacrificed to idols, it might be a little weird. You might be like, wow, is that okay? And Paul was saying some people are not okay with that. They, they, it, it hurts their conscience to think that they might be eating something that somebody offered to an idol. And Paul's like, dude, if, if that's your deal, then just eat vegetables. That's okay. But Paul says... You know, but for you people who are okay with eating everything, <laughs> don't try to crush the people who just eat vegetables. Don't, don't make a war over that. These are what Paul says is disputable matters. He also goes on to, to say that there's certain days that people consider holy. They would, they, they would set these days aside. And so Paul says, that's great. If that's you, that's fine. But you people who see, you know, some people saw every day that Hey, man, any day that I'm alive is a great day, and God created it, and I, I, I treat all days the same. Paul's like, great. Either one of these ways is fine, but don't get in fights over that. I think that's the same when it comes to, 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 to the way things are with us today in the church. Now, we don't typically have issues over food sacrifice to idols. I, I haven't encountered that as a pastor yet. I'm sure that probably some parts of the world that might be an issue. But in our day and age, it's, it's, it's other things like, you know, what, what kind of movies can you watch? Is it okay to, to have a glass of wine with dinner? Uh, even, it is vegetarianism sometimes. But I can tell you, in this church, this might, this might shock some of you. There are actual Democrats in this church and Republicans in this church. There are libertarians in this church. They're all Christ followers, but they all have different ideas on politics. 
There are some people in here who believe that God created the world in a literal seven days and was done with it. And then there's some people who have no problem with thinking that God, that, that Genesis was allegorical and it was, that God could have created the whole world using evolution. We have people like that in our midst. And I'm not going to point them out, okay? <laughs> and you know what? I think that's great. I think that's awesome. Because it starts getting scary to me if you ever have a group of people that are all the same and all the same kind of ideas because that's where you start getting really weirdness. <laughs> These are just disputable matters. When we get to politics, there are some people in here who you can make compelling, question, compelling cases from Scripture why we need big government, and there's some people who can say there's compelling reasons why we don't. There's some people who can say there's compelling issues why the government needs to take care of the poor. There's some people who say, no, man, the poor need to take care of themselves. Whatever. I've heard all, I've probably been on all sides of all the arguments at some point. But these are disputable matters. Don't let these things be the things that divide us. Because honestly, look at our world today. That's the stuff that Christians fight over. Most of what Christians fight over, it's disputable matters. We're not fighting over whether Jesus is Lord, right? Most of the time, I mean, if, if, if we're fighting over Jesus, if Jesus is Lord, okay, that's, that's something to fight over, okay? <laughs> but... If we realize that Jesus is Lord, that he died, he sh- broke, his body was broken, his blood was spilled, he rose again to bring us into new life and to tear down all the walls. If, if we agree on that, then can we just consider most other things, even if we have very strong opinions? And I got to tell you, I'm very, I got very strong opinions on things. I'm not going to lie, okay? But I got to realize that... <laughs> as opinionated as I am, and as right as I think I am, and I think I am most right, and I think most people would benefit by thinking like me, <laughs> I, have to, I have to realize that when we all get to heaven, we're all going to have to make adjustments on what we've believed. There's, there's not going to be any denomination or any one person that's got it all right. There's not. Because God set it up that way, just like we read in the We all need different parts of the body. I think one of the saddest things that I see at that Church of the Holy Sepulchre is I think here we are, the center of where Christianity began, and there's only a few thousand Christians in Jerusalem. Just a few thousand. I mean, less than, you know, a tenth of one percent. Just a a tiny population. And when I look at this Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I think I'm not surprised at why. (laughs) The witness of the Christians there is a witness of division, of bickering, of fighting. And as a result, the world hasn't experienced who Jesus really is. You know, Jesus said something one time, and this is one of my favorite quotes, because I think it's really, truly a key to evangelism. We talked about evangelism in our groups a couple weeks ago, sharing Jesus with people. But I believe if we get this part, people are going to come in. Jesus said, they will know you're my followers by the way that you love one another. What? Can't we just tell people what we believe? No. (laughs) That would be easier. (laughs) Jesus says, they will know you're my followers by the way you guys love one another. You know, one of the most fascinating things that I experienced when I was in Jerusalem, there was, we could experience these lectures at the end of the evening. Most of the evenings after being out touring for 12 hours, I wasn't up for the lectures, but I caught this one. It was a, uh, 
I, I would call it a debate. It was very cordial, though. It was between a Palestinian Christian and an Israeli Jew. The Palestinian Christian was a, um, a professor at a university over there, and the Israeli Jew was the owner of the hotel we were staying at. They were both very intelligent people, very articulate, and they were friends, which made for a good debate. So they began to present their sides of the issue of the Israel-Palestinian thing. And wow, by the end of that, I was like, dude, you know, I've, I've had some opinions on this, but I realized, you know, my little black and white opinions on a lot of these things, it's, it's, a, really, it's a really tough thing. But you know what I loved? At the end of this thing, the, the guy who was moder- moderating, he was, a, I think, a seminary professor from somewhere over here in the United States, and, and he, he reminded me of the words of Paul. He said, you know, Paul starts every one of his letters with grace and peace. He doesn't start it with peace and grace. He says, because you have to have grace to have peace. He said, you know, in this this conflict between Palestine and, and, and Israel, he said, ultimately, we need to pray for grace because grace is offering something to somebody that they don't deserve. It's offering to give someone someone that, that they haven't earned, that they haven't measured up to, and that's certainly what we've all experienced in Christ, have we not? <laughs> Jesus offers us his love, his acceptance. He's torn down the walls. He's offered that to us. And when we offer that same kind of grace to others, that's truly when peace can come in. I tell you, when that guy wrapped up that discussion, I'm like, wow, that was good. I'm going to use that in two weeks. Uh, (laughs) Grace precedes peace. And I think when it comes down to our relationships with one another, we need to, to... particularly in this season of Lent, remind ourselves of the grace of Jesus towards us. Because I I think many times when we start disputing with people over these disputable matters, and when we start having ego stuff, it's because we're not walking in the reality of God's grace towards us. We're not really, we, at some point we think we're entitled. (laughs) At some point we think we deserve what we've got. But when we walk in the reality that, that God has loved us when we never deserved us, that he accepted us no matter what we did, that there's no sin that has stood up against him, and he's welcomed us with open arms, then we can in turn be gracious to other people. You see a person that's not gracious to other people, they haven't received the grace of God. They're, they're, they're horribly tormented on the inside and they can't give grace to other people. You see a person that's, that's living in the reality of the grace of God and they will extend peace to others. I want to close with, with one last thing. We're going to take communion this morning. Um, I love this. This is the prayer of Jesus recorded in John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his, his own disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, the effects of being united with Christ being united with one another is that the world will begin to believe. You know, one reason why I think that there's more people abandoning Christianity than ever in the United States? 
I believe because there's so much dissension within the church. I believe if we start really loving one another, if we, start, if we stop arguing about all these little things here and there, we get back on the, the main page, I believe the world will believe because it'll look like a miracle to them. <laughs> See, the difference between the dream team of 1992 and the, dream team, and the nightmare team of 2004, dream team had their eyes on a big thing. They were all looking at one thing together. Now, their thing was winning. Our thing isn't winning. Our thing is Jesus. That's why we worship so much here. Why, why, do, you spend, why do you sing five songs together? On a side? You know, it's like, uh, because hopefully for a few minutes during your week, we can all be on the same page, no matter what your opinions, your political things, what, where you're coming from in life, that we all focus on the King. We all say glory to Him, our Lord. Lord, this morning we remember your body broken for us. Lord, that in your own body, Lord, you took the penalty for all our sins, God. All the dysfunction, all the brokenness, God, of our world upon yourself. So, Lord, it's in your name that we take this bread, remembering you. Lord, when we take this cup this morning, your blood spilled for the remission of our sins, Lord. God, we just, we take this, Lord, from the standpoint of realizing your amazing grace towards us. Lord, you've extended us favor that we could never earn. God, help us to be broken and poured out for others. Lord, to live grace in all of our relationships. It's in your name that we take this cup this morning. Why don't y'all stand and sing with me real quick? I feel love. I feel safe, I feel Jesus, 